0: Welcome to Export Stories, a podcast featuring first-person insights from the wide and sometimes crazy world of U.S. exporting. Your host for Export Stories is Betsy Olam, president of Olam International, a U.S.-based export management company. Betsy has made a 37-year career of developing global sales and distribution for U.S. companies. Like you, she loves great stories. You don't have to be an exporter to enjoy the stories we're going to share with you each month. We're so glad you've joined us. Now, here is Betsy to introduce today's podcast.
1: Hello, bonjour, hola, konnichiwa, ni hao, marhaban and shalom. Welcome to Export Stories. I'm your host Betsy Olam, and I have been looking forward to this podcast for a long time. Thank you for joining us and listening. I'm very excited to have as our guest today, Richard Heger of the Law Office of Richard Heger. Rich joins me from uh, Kalispell, Montana, his office there. Hi, Rich. Welcome to the podcast.
2: Hey, Betsy. It's uh, great to be with you.
1: Well, I appreciate this. Uh, You know what? I think you are the first attorney we've had on this podcast, at least, that's admitted to being an attorney, so.
2: Oh, yeah, we tend to have, uh, you know, <laughs> alternative uh, desires, but.
1: Exactly, so so we'll, we'll, this will be a good conversation, and a full disclosure to the listeners, Rich and I are friends, and Rich and I are friends because he and my husband have been friends since their freshman year at Vanderbilt University. And I was uh, at
2: your wedding, so.
1: uh, Well, that's right, exactly. Of course, I thought I was going to give you an opportunity to deny being friends with my husband, but too late. Never, never. (laughs) So, uh, and this is how I know about Rich's thirty-five years of legal experience in uh, particular corporate, transactional law, and export-related law. So, anyway, that's that's just the very beginning, and I, I really do want to introduce you to our listeners, Rich. So. Just for a minute, we'll talk a little bit about your background. Um, you're originally from St. Louis, isn't that correct?
2: Yes, and I do have my Cardinal paraphernalia very close to me.
1: Oh, so, we're yeah. so sad. Yeah. This summer is so dry without Cardinal baseball, but mm. we're trying to make do. So, yes, we're, we're the same. Um, so, but tell us a little bit about, obviously, you went to Vanderbilt, and then what happened after that?
2: Well, um, what happened after that was that I, um, had, I had racked up some student loans and I um, figured that uh, I either had to get a job or continue in school. Um, so I had um, looked at actually the Peace Corps and I was very interested in doing that. But um, I thought uh, it may not be the most practical solution under my circumstances. So I was admitted to uh, Columbia Law School in New York and I, and I jumped on that and uh, graduated from there in 1981 and started my career as a um, typical young attorney on Wall Street. Um, that means I got to carry the bags of documents, the various closings that we had. <laughs> So that was about the, uh, you know, and then I get to proofread other documents. So right. I'm, I'm an excellent proofreader and uh, I also have uh, a very uncanny ability to be able to deliver bags of documents to various closings.
1: I have a story about that, uh, uh, about carrying documents with, for a cotton company over to uh, Rotterdam and then to China. And all I was doing was carrying documents. But anyway, so I, maybe everybody's got that on their resume or not um, on their resume. It's okay. Except for the
2: first time I did that, I failed miserably because it was raining outside and I <laughs> uh, took the dolly over into the gutter on Wall Street. And when, <laughs> when I got to the closing, they all looked at me like, you only had one thing to do. And <laughs> <laughs> These are all drenched, but
1: <laughs> oh, that's a good story. That's okay. Uh, but anyway, so the firm, the firm you started with, was that Gibson Dunn and Crutcher?
2: No, it was a it was a firm called & Priest, which has morphed into something else. Uh,
1: yeah,
2: um, but uh, they were, were they specialized in the uh, mortgage bond industry for large utilities. So at that time, um, the United States was still building a lot of nuclear reactors. Um, it was a little bit oh, before wow. Three Mile Island and before Chernobyl. And um, so we did a lot of financings of nuclear power plants throughout the South. A lot of those live in Alabama and the Carolinas and um, elsewhere. Um, but I, you know, so I was learning how to read trust indentures for nuclear power plants and, uh, something within me told me that I, I really, you know, I, I really wanted to try to pursue something different. I always had a interest in international matters and, um, I had, um, my technically I had Three majors at university, but the one that I concentrated on the most was East Asian history. So I, um, I was fascinated by mostly Japanese and Chinese uh, history, and uh, so I I was determined to actually go work overseas, um, and that sort of led me uh, back to St. Louis because. I looked around and I saw what law firms had overseas offices and um, a, the largest firm in my hometown, St. Louis, Brian Cave, had a, an office in Saudi Arabia. And I said, well, you know what? I don't know anything about that, but um, I called them up and they, uh, sort of, they sort of jumped on it. And so I moved to St. Louis with the intent of working in Saudi Arabia.
1: Wow, I didn't know that's how you got to Saudi Arabia. That's very interesting, and this may be a diversion, but I saw on your c v that you participated in a business law program at hebei University
2: hebei yeah, so um when
1: was that
2: I've tried that to, that- to avoid being a lawyer for many many years and <laughs> uh, i I actually took you'll see my c v says I took a diversion into the state Department right but right. um I had uh, taught as an adjunct professor here in Montana at the University of Montana Law School, and that was uh, for their business law course. Uh-huh. Um, and I sort of caught the little teaching bug, which, you know, again was a a, a way out of being a full time attorney. And um, I was contacted. I forgot by who, but I I, uh, saw that there was this uh, adjunct position, which was only for, I think, two and a half months, something like maybe three months, in uh, Xijia-Tuang.
1: Thank Uh, you for pronouncing that. I wasn't even going to try. (laughs) Well,
2: even when I pronounced it over there, the Chinese would just look at me because they... (laughs) wouldn't have a clue what I was saying, but yeah. I was, I was okay. trying to tell them that that's where I was living, um, so I, I taught at the university there, uh, wow. again, business law as well, oh, and wow. uh, lived on campus um, and uh, tried to survive uh, campus Chinese food for, for about three months
1: what what year was that
2: uh, that was like three years ago so that was in okay. 2016.
1: where what what province is she's uh... Hebei
2: yeah it's uh, <laughs> yeah, Hebei. Hebei yeah um <laughs> which i learned like every everything there is has very simple translation i think oh
1: is that the province too Hebei is that the province yeah. Yeah. oh okay okay and where is that in china
2: It was about, I think, 120 kilometers or so south of Beijing, southwest of Beijing.
1: Oh, okay.
2: um, It was maybe an hour and a half, hour on the bullet train to Beijing. And then um, I sort of explored within about four hours of the city, um, in either directions, going toward Xian, where the uh, terracotta warriors are, and oh. um, a little bit i sort of i was since I had studied East Asian history, I was fascinated by different um, areas that were um, you know part of the uh, emergence of the of China in uh, you know starting 2000 years ago and right going through the the uh Chang Dynasty, but um, so yeah, um, and that that had been a lifelong ambition of mine. I had when I graduated from Vanderbilt, um, one suggestion was that I continue my uh, Chinese studies and go learn the language, but I am, I would say, my ability to learn languages. Probably my my Achilles heel, and so I didn't really want to start with Chinese. And at that time, you you remember Betsy that we we have traversed quite a quite a bit of time. Um, the there was people looked at me as if I was nuts if I said I was going to try to specialize in China. Uh, because I believe, well, Mao was still, I think he died in 1976, but the country itself was absolutely never thought of as being any type of opportunity. Um, you know, there, it it was prior to the reforms that Deng Xiaoping put into place um, you know, there didn't seem to be any opportunity in China. Um, of course, I have that also uncanny knack of missing out on <laughs> most of the international opportunities that presented myself and themselves. But,
1: well, um, you have a pretty rich background. I wouldn't go that far, but I know what you mean. Uh now uh, there's the American kids are studying Chinese all over the country and you know uh elementary school and such so uh but yeah, yeah I, I, I
2: have three I nephews know. that are in uh in pasadena california and they are at a school in which the primary language is mandarin and
1: amazing amazing um,
2: yeah I, uh, and they remind me of that every time i see them but
1: <laughs> that you got to have that experience i bet it was wonderful I've been to China a few times. I haven't seen the Xi'an soldiers. I want to see that. Uh, but I thought the Great Wall was just magnificent, and I could have stood yeah. there. As, as
2: I, I would send some photos back, because you know the old China is disappearing fairly quickly. But there are still many pockets of it. And if you got off the beaten trail just a little bit, um, you could see sort of the generation that lived through the Cultural Revolution and uh, the, prior to the reforms that took place, um, they are pretty much left out. Um, You know, they're obviously taken care of, but um, the new generation and what I, you know, learned from my interaction with my students is that i don 't think they have much of a concept of what China was like up until the 1980s
1: interesting and, um,
2: but I would find these pockets where traditional culture continued, but for the most part, you know when you travel on trains and you see uh, like my city um, was a considered to be a, a small Chinese city of only twelve million people, you know. <laughs> And,
1: yeah, a small city in China.
2: Yeah, and you would travel through, you know, these other cities that you'd never heard of in your life, you know, and they would be 10 to 20 million people in this city and you'd get close to it. And it was like this mammoth array of, you know, tall buildings stretching out into for eternity. And I'd think, what? city is that? And having studied China, I had never heard of it before. But it, um, it's a remarkable place in terms of uh, the development of the country. It, obviously, I experienced a lot of where I was, uh, was in a high pollution zone, because oh. it is the area to the west of it was um, populated with a lot of the coal plants that powered northern China. Yeah. Um, So, but, you know, you could see, too, that there's a concerted effort to um, address that issue. And I have a fair amount of confidence that they may be um, at the forefront of sort of realigning our energy sources. Yeah. Because for them, it was a daily thing, and it was... Health hazard, you know, you would get worn. And my students would give that, you know, they'd see me without a mask on, and they would just like run up and give me a mask because
1: oh, wow, uh,
2: they were concerned about my, you know, exposure to that.
1: A couple of times I was there was in like January and February, and it wasn't as bad in Beijing, but still. But so, in your teaching experience, was there any discussion about? international trade, trade with the U.S. or was it a different... Was yeah, that no, they, I've,
2: yeah, I had a section on on trade and um, you know I had honestly my students you know their English capabilities were a little bit limited but um, so I couldn't really remember all their names so I would sort of ask them you know what were their ambitions and uh, you know, what it, what, what they see themselves doing after university. And, uh, one fellow, he, he, he was kind of a charismatic, charismatic sort of guy. And you could tell he was kind of an alpha dog in the, in the classroom. But so he told me that he was going to be a CEO of a startup company. And, and, uh, so I just, instead of using his name, I would just call him CEO, you know, but, um, <laughs> But, and, what
1: was, and what was their initial impression, or their, what was their impression of the U.S.? I mean, if, what, how did they express what they thought about the U.S.? I'd be curious.
2: Um, I think they were, um, they had very positive thoughts about the U.S. Um, you could tell that they, the information that they had on the U.S. was, certainly limited Mm um sure but there were some cultural aspects that they were certainly aware of Um, and you know there's still um there's still some pretty heavy restrictions on expression of thought (laughs) in china and so i think they were not I think they were wary of venturing too far into subjects that, um, because, you know, honestly, it's quite possible that within their class, there were students that uh, were probably in the party. And, um, you know, they they probably were very sensitive to making sure, sure. that they towed the line. So. Yeah.
1: Um... You know, as I've attended trade shows in different parts of the country, which is, you know, for my business, it's a great way to promote, uh, you know, U.S. products. Um, China has such a large imprint, you know, on all in all these countries in Africa, South America. You know, you go to these trade shows, and there's just a huge Chinese imprint, and the the reach that China had that the the effort the coordinated effort of course it's easy for them because they're an autocracy but the coordinated effort that China has made to develop influence around the world is I think we should I think we need to be aware of it and I think it makes them you know formidable adversary. I don't know what you think.
2: Um, you know, adversary is a strong word. I I don't think they view themselves as being an adversary. Um, or I, I don't think they view us as being an adversary, but, um, I do think that they believe that the, that their future development has to involve, um, Sort of stretching a little bit, <laughs> and I, yeah, I mean, you know, stretching little, their
1: sphere of influence. Is that what yeah,
2: stretching their their sphere of influence, because there's a couple of things there. Um, one is that when you talk about this Belt and Road initiative, um, I was in, I I had a holiday vacation after I left China. In Laos, and uh, we were in a town called Luang Prabang, which is supposed to be a sleepy backwater.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And there was under construction a a terminal for a high-speed train coming from China, and that it was continuing on to um, Angkor Wat, and Mm -hmm. then to Vietnam, and I think Thailand, and you could, And it was all being built by the Chinese. They didn't even hire uh, local labor for very much. So, uh, And then that same expansion is going on to the West, um, into the Stans. And um, also, if you look at the South China Sea, if you actually look at a map and you see these um, recent sort of... Uh, contesting various little island spits out in the South Mm -hmm. China Sea you realize that it looks like it's very aggressive but if you get a map out and you look at it and you hear the Chinese you realize that their access to open waters is extremely limited because they are surrounded by uh, Japan, Korea, the Philippines Uh Um, down, you know, and then going south. And so I think that they view their trade um, routes Uh as being of the highest priority to them being able to continue to develop because they, while they do have a lot of resources, they they have a lot of choke points in their trade routes.
1: What are some of the choke points that you would...
2: Well, the choke points had been um, the great expanse to the west, uh, the deserts into Kazakhstan, and Mm -hmm. they see Russia as an adversary, much more than the United States. Okay. To the north, they're cut off in that direction. To the east, they have Japan, which is, you know, historically um, a, you know, not a friendly power. Um, And then the Philippines they view as being controlled by the United States and Taiwan being being influenced by the United States. And so the South China Sea is where they need to bring in the oil and all the other supplies that they import. And um, they see that as a huge choke point. Then Southeast Asia I think they really want, they're voracious. I mean, when you see the, and you've seen it, when you see what's going on in China in terms of building, um, apparently they don't even have enough sand to, um, for all the concrete construction they have. And they don't have the wood and they don't have this and that. And they need to have these roots open and secured, because, um, you know, they have a history, you know, if you look at their history, they have a history of Western powers shutting them down, <laughs> so, and, and Japan invading them, and, you know, so, I think they've said never again, and so, yeah. so, we may view that as being aggressive and adversarial, but I, I think they view it as survival going survival. On. And yeah. they, have a long, yeah, they have a very long term outlook. So right. they're right. looking in the next couple hundred years, what do they have to do in order to right. maintain their security and also their economic vibrance. And they, you know, when you have 1.3 billion people and, and you, if you have economic downturns and you have a single party government, well, that single-party government is obviously fearful that they won't be a single-party government unless they can make sure that people are um, not, you know, that they're still enjoying the economic prosperity that that party right. has brought to them.
1: I never think of them having any insecurities, but what government does not So that's a good point. I still, I would like to go back to Saudi Arabia and let's talk about your experience there. So you first went to Saudi Arabia with the law firm out of St. Louis, is that correct? Yeah,
2: Brian Cave. Um, for some odd reason, that they had a, an office in Saudi Arabia. It started in the, the big boom, oil boom period was the early 80s um, in that area. And so one thing led to another, and they had an office there. I got there in nineteen eighty five when oil crashed from i don't know what it was, but it it went I mean, down below ten dollars a barrel now that you know we're experiencing that again, but um,
1: right, right. Yeah. at that
2: time, it was a severe crash and, and I if I would have directed my attentions toward East Asia, then I would have been in great shape, but i again. <laughs> I have an uncanny knack of getting a <laughs> place that is. But anyway, so um it recovered, but I mean, um, so I got there and it was essentially still the Wild West at that time. Um, there were little or no rules <laughs> at all. Um I I represented um, a both US and European and um, Japanese and Korean companies that were Exporting to the region.
1: Wow.
2: Um, So I got sort of a broader perspective on um, exports from not just the United States, but from other European and and Asian countries. Yeah, being the Wild West um, they uh, there was a lot of um, I would say uh, unethical practices by a lot of companies doing business. No
1: way. Uh-uh.
2: Yeah. yeah, a little bit. Okay, and
1: I believe you. I yeah, I mean, that's sounds... I know several, it's a fact. Yeah, so I excited.
2: mean, it's several different levels. Uh, you had a lot of Western companies would, they would just drop off whatever they're exporting into Saudi Arabia and... That'd be the last you heard of them, you know. So the Saudis actually had to start passing commercial code laws because they'd be left with all these items that didn't work anymore. They couldn't find any spare parts, and there's nobody there to support or service it. So they started enacting laws in which um, companies wanting to do business there would have to have a local agent um, support and service their what they had sold in Saudi Arabia, so it was sort of the beginnings of um, ma- you know, um, maturing or you know, having their commercial code mature so it sort of met their needs, and then obviously, you know, US companies would be up against um,
1: the Japanese the European, trade, Korean trade, and yeah,
2: and the Europeans, and
1: yeah. at
2: that time. Germany um, allowed a tax deduction for any bribes you had to pay to get business.
1: I was going to ask you what for the U.S. companies. What explain what were the uh, foreign corrupt practices uh, laws that uh, that affected U.S. companies?
2: Well, they um, of course, Saudi Arabia had its own bribery laws, but those were more or less ignored. Uh, But the uh, US companies were all operating under the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. So when they were um, dealing with uh, the the biggest fire was always a government agency, whether it was hospitals or um, various other industries in which Saudi Arabia developed itself by the government being behind uh, most of the large you know projects that were going and on.
1: Infrastructure there. projects.
2: Infrastructure yeah. you know to their credit they folk you know they spent a lot of their money on education and and health um, and, and then also on on just plain old infrastructure.
1: Yeah.
2: So that was you know the Major part of the economy, but there was, you know, a growing consumer economy as well. Um, so the U.S. companies, when they were. Dealing with the the these large in these large pro they usually were bid projects, you know, they mm-hmm. were supposed to be competitive bids. Um, but somehow you never, you know, they never well, they wouldn't always disclose who actually um, got the low bid, they would disclose who won. <laughs>
1: right,
2: right. Um, But I was, you know, I had to uh, work with a Saudi attorney. They, you, you know, again, I couldn't just be there on my own. So we, we, we had a partnership with a Saudi attorney and I mm-hmm. remember he walked into my office one day and he goes, I think I got a fax by mistake. And of course I'm using the word fax when they were actually being used. Oh, yeah. You know, what'd you get? And uh, he goes, Well, um, it's a contract, but um, it's an agency agreement. And it was for the sale of uh, military equipment to the Ministry of Defense. But the agent was uh, going to get, I think it was like 15% of the total project cost which was i think like 4 billion dollars nice so you do the math on that right and the the agent was going to be getting hundreds of millions of dollars in commissions well we sort of figured out who the agent was
1: <laughs> yeah
2: so a lot of the the structure, you know, I don't know if that would have passed muster under the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act or not. Um, I think. So was, that
1: was that was the agent for the U.S. company.
2: Yeah, so I, they would they'd be paying a commission to somebody. But if you're paying somebody a commission of say two hundred million dollars, you know, for them just to be your representative, right? You gotta wonder, really. Um, where did that money, you know, really end up? And it was not a U.S. company that was actually um, involved in that. It was well, a European company.
1: Yeah, um, I, you know, it, it was in those days, and still is uh, hard sometimes for U.S. companies to compete in those markets where it's lawless and there's so much corruption. Uh, I can't. But you say. know, the
2: thing was is that there, you know, when you talk about corruption, that's a that's a big subject into itself.
1: Right. There was
2: no there was no small corruption. You know, like how you hear these stories, you go to these con- countries and you get pulled over and you pull out some money and you're on your way again, or <laughs> yeah. you know, you're you're trying that you're coming in through the airport and they say you can't bring that in and then you flash some money and you you go on your way. There was no small corruption in Saudi Arabia when I was there. None. It it was the it was the it was the structural, I don't know, maybe use the word corruption, where you know you had to you had to know the right people and they were going to get money out of that project, but it was going to be big bucks. You know, it's not a question of uh, tossing around a few thousand dollars here or there. It was going to be, you know, major dollars.
1: Oh, sure. I wonder so, how much it's changed since I, 1986, 85.
2: You know, I think. Well, I I ended. Up, I left in 1996, and I had seen some changes in terms of the way. Um, things were structured. Yeah. Um, And they they were positive, but there's still this underlying, so they had another thing called um, offset. So then they figured out, okay, for these big companies coming in, US, European, you know, Asian, um, they can't just come in and sell us this stuff and have an agent. We need them to invest the proceeds from the project locally, you know, so we want them to build some sort of research center or build some factory or build some housing or whatever it was, you know, so the offset was then so like 10% of the project had to be done in country, so these companies then would start looking at different ways that they could spend their money in country there was, you know, that was an opportunity for abuse by um, by local agents who were connected, you know, but um, at least it was better than just paying some agent, you know, a couple hundred million dollars on a massive contract, you yeah. know, and then that, that money goes to Switzerland or whatever. But,
1: right. Um, so complicated. So there's the Saudi royal family, then under that is there just a class of of business people that have some kind of connection to the royal family in order to have that connection or Um, that's a
2: really good point so um when i was there there were some very high level business business people that Mm -hmm. um so there's the royal family and when you think of the royal family, it is probably there's probably twenty thousand people who would claim to be in the royal family, but there's only probably fifty that matter at most okay. <laughs> and, and everybody else doesn't want to be and so okay. they would you know they would go to u s companies or other- you know european and they'd say i am you know so and so um my." Great-great uncle was the founder of Saudi Arabia, whatever, and you know I'm I'm connected, you know. But they wouldn't be they the uh, there there were some really savvy businessmen who had absolutely no like connections to the royal family per se, except that they were very competent business people who the country relied upon. Mm -hmm. Um, And just as a real side note, but so I represented one Canadian uh, telecommunications company and they were bidding on a massive telecommunications project. Um, And so we were gonna go visit our our representative agent who was the real deal. They were they wouldn't just be, you know, uh, a conduit or whatever. They would actually do the installations. They would do the service. They would do the follow up.
0: Mm-hmm. They would
2: be, you know, integrally um, involved in the project. Well, they had a last name uh, that everybody recognizes: uh, Bin Laden.
1: Bin Laden, yeah. right?
2: And so we went down to their compound in Jeddah um when I say compound I mean there's that was probably I don't even know how many acres because it just it kept going it was so you had like this walled compound that was maybe 50 acres or more and you had different houses within it where various members of the Bidlong family would live you know we were dealing with uh member of the family that was involved in the telecommunications industry and they had their own business and they had support and um it was legitimate but it uh was you know uh, kind of you know because at that time um Osama was known but it wasn't known for the reasons we know him now you know
1: right right
2: um but it um but they He's were a
1: wacky cousin.
2: <laughs> he was a, he was a wacky cousin in this case. I think he was a wacky nephew or something. Oh, okay. But, okay. Um, but anyway, so yeah, but they were, it was an established business and they were um, very, uh, I was impressed by them in terms of their business acumen and, Yeah. So there were a number of families around like that. And some of the family, like they were, that family was from Yemen. Um, and I met other families, prominent families that were either Palestinian or they were uh, from Lebanon. Um, and you had some of those families who came from a long tradition of business, you know, in In Lebanon or in Palestine or in Yemen and they had sought their fame and fortune in Saudi Arabia and and were part of that business class.
1: Well they had to have been extremely smart to have worked their way into the system and become as established as you've described so.
2: Yes established and legitimate but they would they would develop their relationships with the royal family. The thing is, is that the royal family was really stable back then. You know, you had, um, you were only in the second generation, right? So you had the founder, uh, King Abdelaziz, and then you had the sons of King Abdelaziz, and although he had many, many sons, he only had seven sons by one particular wife. And they were called the Suderi Seven. So all of the kings, except for one, were part of that Suderi, Suderi Seven. And uh, when I talked to other Saudis there, they would tell me, they go, yes, this is you know good for now, but all these, all these Suderi Seven folks are like the same age or close to it. He goes, if you remember what happened in the Soviet Union, you went through like whatever, all these different uh, leaders of the Soviet Union within like five years, because they're all like too old, and uh, there was gonna have to be some sort of succession down to the next level. So now you have the first, when you hear about this new um, sort of powerful person in Saudi Arabia. yeah. Um, he's the first, he's not the king yet, but that's all you hear about. His father. Yeah,
1: this prince, whatever, I can't think of his name. Yeah.
2: His, king Salman is his father. Right. He is a Suderi seven. Um, but he, so he's the first generation beyond, he's the first grandson. Muhammad um, bin Salman. And that has caused a huge amount of dislocation because that means that those other 20,000 members of the royal family you know they're being left out in the cold because now you're moving beyond the original sons of the founder to the grandson and that sort of even that sort of causes more factions to be created
1: uh, we're probably going to have some books in the future about the palace intrigue. And, and that uh, can't. There must be a lack of brotherly love somewhere with all those, all that money and all that power.
2: There is um, one. There was an assassination of one by a cousin already.
1: Yeah. Uh, so.
2: Wiesel, and I think this sort of. It comes down to money, right? That's what sure
1: it comes- money and power. They are all
2: they are all getting a check, but I think this current crown prince is stopping that, and so it's creating creating a lot of enemies, you know. But that also goes to the back to the point of well, if you're a U.S. company and you want to do business there, so if you hitch your wagon to the wrong part of the royal family, then forget it. You know you're not getting the projects that uh, are being given out to the right side of the family.
1: Oh my goodness! Well, we I want to take a few minutes to talk about your work with Semi Tool in Montana before yeah. we go, but you just want to round out the experience, which is so broad and so interesting. Eventually, you moved to Montana. I mean, why wouldn't you? It's gorgeous.
2: Well, it's also, it's best place for the witness protection plan, too.
1: Well, I wasn't going to say anything, but (laughs) right. So there you are in Montana. Tell us about SemiTool. uh, Yeah.
2: So SemiTool is a very interesting story because um, it was a company that uh, was founded by a person who in Southern California in his garage, uh, but he was from Montana and he pulled up stakes and he moved back to Montana and he built a company um, that built equipment for uh, the semiconductor industry to make chips. Um, He came up with a great invention for one particular Process one piece of equipment, and um, sort of on his own, he bootstrapped himself, and he and he started this company. Even though he started in his garage in in uh, Southern California, he uh, really built it here in Montana, uh, from just a couple employees to about fifteen hundred employees, and from zero revenue to two hundred fifty million dollar a year. Uh, revenue and of course with the semiconductor industry um, that was a boom industry it was Mm -hmm. there's a saying that uh, you know even turkeys can fly in a strong wind you know so if you were in it and you had something decent then you're going to be taken off because the wind was incredibly strong in that industry
1: Yeah. yeah
2: but the industry started morphing, and um, of course, it became very strategic for um, other areas of the world. So the Europeans um, wanted to have a strong semiconductor industry. Uh, the Japanese wanted a strong one. The Koreans the, um, and China, obviously. But actually, it started more in Taiwan than it did in, in China itself. So um, the, you had to export or die. And um, semi-tool got very good at exporting. So it found uh, niche clients in uh, particularly in, I would say Europe was about 25%. And then you had Japan, uh, Korea and Taiwan, making up another Thirty-five to forty percent. Sometimes we would export up, upwards of seventy percent of our sales would be exports, um, but almost always it would be about fifty wow. percent. Um, and these were large, sophisticated pieces of equipment. You call them a tool, but they were size of a Chevy Suburban. You know, so they yes. were um, three million dollar pieces of equipment, and they needed process engineers and they needed a lot of uh, support because they broke down a lot and um, you'd be in these locations in China, Taiwan, in Germany, France, Italy, um, Japan, Korea and so you can imagine that number one you had to set up these export channels and so we did set up offices in most of these places, but then you had to have strong relationships with people uh, that were in the industry and could get you in the door in these various large manufacturing companies. Um, you know, you had TSMC in, in Taiwan, and you had um, you had these other large um, well-known names in Europe.
1: Um, so you had so, your own, you had your own offices, but you also had like dealers or agents or yeah, partners of some kind.
2: Yeah, sometimes I mean that was kind of a constant battle to determine whether we would do direct sales, but sometimes we would use a rep or a distributor mm-hmm. because they had the. That's a, the industry was very very relationship oriented it was a it was a very insular industry and so people knew each other and you either had a good reputation or a bad reputation and reputation was really important and so um, you had to hook up with somebody in those countries who had a good reputation and who had the ability to you know, it, it took a lot of, it takes a lot of talking and a lot of schmoozing to sell somebody, you know, a $3 million piece of equipment and, and sell five of them to them, you know, so
1: right, right. Um,
2: so we had reps and distributors. Um, there was always a tension between, you know, which one to use because a distributor buys it from you and you never know what they're really reselling it for, you know, so you could be losing a lot of your profit simply because they've, you know, they can charge the customer, whatever their customer will, whatever the freight will bear. With a rep, then you would, they would get commissions. They would get 10, 12% sometimes. Yeah. And um, they would sometimes have, but we, we needed local people to do service and, spares and um so you know uh, it was it it took a lot of management time in order to uh, to deal with these export sales
1: do you have uh i guess uh maybe we could end with if you have any stories that you can think of related to semi-tool and maybe some some uh incidents that was a challenge uh challenging in in getting a deal done or something like yeah. that
2: well yeah i mean um i do remember getting a frantic call in the middle of the night um we had a we were moving one of our offices in japan and we had a uh, an office there but we had a, a a japanese guy as the president of our japan operations great guy he was a uh, trained as a sushi chef sushi chef It's hard to say that five times really <laughs> uh, and which in Japan is a big deal right you don't you don't just get to serve sushi in Japan you have to go through this elaborate training, but he was our president of our of our local company there, and he he was just frantic on the phone and I said what's the problem and he goes well you you know I've been told by the CEO I got to move this office and I said yeah well you know we're we want to find something that's a little more economical and actually closer to our customer He goes, yeah but um yeah, yeah the owners of these this building and I go what's what's the problem with the owners he goes well have you ever heard of Yakuza and I go, uh, yeah, I've seen some movies with uh, Yakuza or Yakuza, Japanese Mafia.
1: Ah, you know, I did Yakuza. not recognize the name. Okay. And uh,
2: he goes, Yakuza, Yakuza. And he goes, uh, he goes, they don't want us to move.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: I go, well, what's that mean for us? He goes, it means nothing for you, but it means... I lose my hand, or I lose some fingers, or, you know, so, um we had to calm him down, and I said, okay, obviously, it's about money, right, so we had to figure out some way uh, to make sure our Japanese president didn't lose his fingers to his landlord. Um,
1: and, in, in, and in the sushi business, those are important.
2: <laughs> that's really important as a sushi chef. You, Yeah, you, he was a great guy, but... Um,
1: oh, my gosh, well... Goodness gracious. This has been so much fun. We could go for another hour, but uh, I'm just uh, really appreciative of your taking time to share your stories and your experience. I know people enjoy hearing about this. And so let me just say a few words here to our listeners. This was a great conversation today. And I'd love to have, have you join in on the conversation and and I'd love to have your comments and questions. So you can reach out to me at exportstoriespodcast.com and go to the contact page. And if you post your comments, I'll make sure people see that. And we're also on Twitter. You know, we're really trying to create a community of exporters right now. There's, this is a crazy time in, in the world, and let us know what's going on. Rich, thank you so much for participating and being here. And thanks to our listeners. This was really fun today. I I really enjoyed it.
2: Yeah, it's great to always talk to you and uh, uh, give my best to you-know-who. I will. uh, Thanks again for inviting me on your show.
1: And thank you. So thanks, everyone, and we'll be back soon.
0: Thank you so much for listening to Export Stories. Perhaps you have a good export story that you would like to share with us or a comment about today's podcast. You can send your ideas and comments to our website at exportstoriespodcast.com or to Betsy Olam on LinkedIn. Subscribe to our newsletter at exportstoriespodcast.com so we can alert you of upcoming episodes and share resources with you. We're building a community of export storytellers, so please share this podcast with your friends who have interest in exporting.